Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. This week's California Report magazine starts with a sheep farmer in the Cape Valley, a rural stretch northwest of Sacramento. When his parents called him at three in the morning, he assumed it was about a sick animal. It was September back in 2006, and the sky was lit by an orange glow. My dad said, I got to call the ranch is on fire. Where are you? So I grabbed a couple of dogs and off we went. The farmer's name is PJ Phillips, and he was raised with wildfires. He knew that when the winter rains stop in California, the state becomes a tinderbox. California's wildfires are getting bigger. Most of them are started by accident. But there was something different about the way this fire started. It seemed like somebody did it on purpose. Who would do something so demented as to set something on fire? I'm Sasha Coca, and this week we're devoting our whole show to one story about how investigators caught a serial arsonist. Reporter Teresa Katsarillis tells us how it took two years and dozens of people to track him down. By the time PJ got to his ranch, the hills were already burning. The valley's volunteer fire department was there, but the dry winds were working against them. Yeah, you could hear the grass burning and the snap crackle pop. The next morning, I remember it was cloudy, and it was kind of, there was a little bit of a dew, and just the smell of that, that charcoal smell was really, everything had burned. When did you realize that your sheep were in the fire? The next morning, you know, it was, uh, uh, yeah, I hope it never happens again. PJ lost 270 sheep that night. The fire cost the ranch thousands of dollars. And about a week later, a local sheriff discovered a second fire in almost the exact same spot, burning its way into PJ's ranch again. A few weeks after the fire killed his sheep, P.J. got a call from the local district attorney. He told P.J. that both of the fires on his ranch had been started on purpose. 
We don't know how many wildfires are started by arsonists, in California or anywhere else. State agencies say arsonists set around 5% of wildfires. Other studies say it's more like 20%. And we also don't really understand why arsonists do this. More often than not, your local wildfire arsonist's not getting paid. He's not out for revenge. It's not even clear he's trying to hurt you. I talked to Ed Nordskog, a detective with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department who's worked hundreds of arson cases. He's also a profiler who studies what makes arsonists tick. A lot of them don't understand what they're doing or why they're doing it. They'll ask me, well, why do you think I'm doing it? A lot of the arsonists he's interviewed feel frustrated by their lives or shortchanged. Other experts say setting fires can be a way for arsonists to regain control in their lives and exert control over others. Here's one thing we do know about arsonists. They tend to start a lot of fires. Most wildfire arsonists set dozens of them, operating for years before they're caught. I would say that I was, at at some points in time, probably working over 20 arson cases. Alan Carlson is a fire investigator who's helped solve wildfire arson cases all over the country. And he is just full of stories about this stuff. In one of our first interviews, we were chatting on the phone, and he just started listing all these serial arsonists he'd caught in California. There was the woman who set fires closer and closer to her home. Even lighting her own apartment complex on fire while she was in it with her kids. Then there's the meth addict who set fires when he couldn't sleep, and then decided to tell Alan everything. So Alan unfolded a map of Northern California, gave him a pen. We got up to about 230 fires, I think it was. And he says, that's not all I did, but that's all I can remember right now. And there's the Hoopa Indian Reservation near Humboldt County, where at one point, arsonists set an average of about 400 fires a year. I mean, I'm surprised they're not running into each other when they... (laughs) they (laughs) But you should say that. Oh, yeah. That happened, too. Alan and his team caught two arsonists while they were staking out another arsonist. Alan also oversaw Operation High Desert, the team of investigators who tracked down the guy who burned up P.J. Phillips' sheep in 2006. And he's proud of this case. It's considered one of California's exemplary arson investigations. A couple thousand people live in the Cape Valley, mostly farmers and casino workers. There's a biker-themed bar and grill that sells hot peach cobbler every morning, and the farmers throw a hoedown every year. Before they caught the man who burned PJ's sheep, most people in the Cape Valley didn't think they had a fire problem. Back in the 90s, most of the fires were small. But as the years went by, there were just a lot of them. By 2004, there were about 10 times more fires in the Cape Valley than there used to be. And then that year, a fire outside of town engulfed an area bigger than San Francisco. The cause was undetermined, but many suspected arson. And that is when Alan and his team, Operation High Desert, got involved in all this. Alan worked for CAL FIRE, a California agency that acts as a fire department for the state's forests and rural areas. It's actually home to one of the biggest wildfire arson investigations unit in the world. Alan's office is basically fire central. His bookshelves are lined with hats from every state and country where he's worked. And on the walls are these big, colorful matte photographs. One is a close-up of a charred book of matches. This is a cigarette match device. 
Another is a close-up of this overhead sunglasses compartment in a car, which someone stuffed with red and gold fireworks. The guy had three or four more hidden underneath the carpet in the back. These are pictures of incendiary devices, the household items that arsonists jerry-rigged together and used to start fires. And this is what makes serial arsonists so hard to catch. A lot of the time, these devices are time-delayed. The smarter arsonists build them like little bombs with long fuses, so that they don't start a fire until after the arsonists far away. Allen's kept pictures of the devices from his favorite cases. Two of those pictures are from the case of the Cape Valley arsonist. What was the High Desert team's first step in catching him? Figuring out his device and how it ticks. This is my travel bag. Oh, Alan whoa. starts That's rifling bad. through his gear. Bulb syringe. My little what is that? metal detector. Investigators comb through arson sites to figure out where the fire started and to see if the arsonist left any evidence behind. But with a wildfire, the burn site can get as large as a city. And a lot of the evidence has already, you know, burned up. So the process can get a little eccentric and hyper-technical. Here's Ed Nordskog, the arsonist profiler in L.A. we heard from earlier. There's nothing like it in law enforcement. The technical nature of it outweighs any murder scene. When a fire starts, it's fragile. It needs fuel to eat and wind to grow. And the further it burns, the stronger it gets. The flames burn higher and hotter. Fire investigators rely on this basic principle as they work their way through a scene. Picture, for instance, a tree burned by fire. Under certain conditions, the char mark on the trunk forms a diagonal line. Because fire gets bigger as it burns away from its starting point, the low point of that diagonal line is often closest to the fire's source. If you know what to look for, each tree is pointing back to the scene of the crime. And the closer you get to the source of the fire, the smaller the clues are. A staining on a small pebble, soot that has deposited on one side of an aluminum can that had been discarded. Eventually, investigators tend to narrow in on a smaller stretch of ground. Similar to what an archaeologist would do, you put out grids. The dirtiest and most taxing portion of the entire investigation is once you get down on your hands and knees and you start working out that grid line by line, inch by inch. At this point, the investigators sometimes start finding clues as to how the fire started. You're looking for a black charred object as small as a single burnt match. This is painstaking work. And when Alan was tracking the KP Valley arsonist, it led to a major breakthrough in that case. In 2005, local investigators found a rough, brittle piece of material that curved in the shape of a C. It was part of the arsonist's device, a small, flat spiral that I'm going to call the coil. For the record, I know all about the coil and how it works, but everyone I talked to for this story asked me not to tell you about it. They don't want you to know how to make one. Alan says the coil is one of the most dangerous devices he's ever found. The coil is dangerous because it is elegant. When it burns, it rarely leaves any trace behind. And as they smolder down, the ash drops off of the coil, like a cigarette ash. 
and mixes in with what will become burned later on. The coil can also take up to four hours to actually start a fire, giving the arsonist lots of time to get away. The coil is like a murder weapon that doesn't pull the trigger until the killer is in another state. Then, in most cases, it erases itself, deleting any evidence that it was there. The coil confirmed a suspicion that the High Desert team had from the very beginning. Whoever designed it had a feel for fire and how it works. That meant the Cape Valley arsonist could be a firefighter. According to the investigators I've talked to, roughly a third of the arsonists they catch work in emergency services. They're paramedics, for instance, or firefighters. Here's Ed Nordskog, the L.A. detective who profiles people who set fires. The firefighter wildland serial arsonist is that much more dangerous because he, depending on his skill level, understands how fire moves. They have a better chance at creating that catastrophic event uh, than anybody else. So this raises an obvious question. Did any of the firefighters in the Cape Valley start to suspect each other? Well, yeah. At least one of them did. You're listening to the California Report magazine. I'm Sasha Koka, and on this week's show, we're looking at serial arsonists who light hundreds of wildfires in our state and are rarely caught. This is the story of how California investigators caught one of them. Reporter Teresa Katsurillis takes us back to the Cape Valley. It's an area northwest of Sacramento that a decade ago suffered from dozens of arson fires every year. She's going to introduce us to a former fire captain who says some of his fellow firefighters were starting to suspect one of their own. Bob Eason moved to this green stretch of walnut orchards way back in 1988. He bought his own orchard, then he and his son, Bob Jr., joined the fire department here. Firefighters have an ability to spot arsonists. Before moving to Cape, Bob was a fire captain in a big and prestigious department in the Bay Area. The best thing about being a firefighter is you meet other firefighters and they become closer to you than, than your family. I couldn't imagine another job that I would have enjoyed as much. That sense of family that Bob's talking about, it can get really intense in smaller fire departments. Like most rural areas, the fire department in the Cape Valley is made up entirely of volunteers. They're mostly local farmers. They spend a lot of time together. Volunteer fire departments are good old boy things. You know, you have to tell them who you are and everything. You leave the room and they vote you in or out. Bob didn't notice anything fishy about the fires in the valley at first. But once Bob was allowed to join the volunteers, the chief caught him up on the local gossip pretty quickly. Farmers meet first thing in the morning to bull They used to meet up at a little store down there where the casino is. When we were down there at the casino one morning, and uh, he told me about coils. The chief explained that the coil was an arsonist's device. He says, oh, it's a thing like that, and it burns real slow, and I says... What makes you guys think that that's, that's what's going on? And he's, oh, well, I, I usually find them. I can always find them. I'm thinking, good God. <laughs> to be clear, this conversation happened in 1988. That's almost 20 years before Alan and the High Desert team investigated anything. And for the next two decades or so, the volunteers and their neighborhood arsonist just sort of put up with each other. 
it occurred to Bob that the volunteers might be dealing with one of their own. The arsonists he'd met when he was a fire captain seemed obsessive to him, completely preoccupied with fire and firefighting, and, well, so did a few of the volunteers. (laughs) They were, they fit the profile of an arsonist. Bob didn't tell anyone about this. Alan Carlson, the Cal Fire investigator we've been hearing from, says that in his experience, volunteer firefighters tend to keep their suspicions to themselves. I've seen that before, and most of them didn't come forward and say anything about it. It's hard to turn against one of your own. So towards the end of 2005, a year into the investigation, Alan started combing through two decades of reports from the Valley's past fires. He was looking for patterns, the firefighters who responded to fires a little too quickly, the cars that always seemed to pass by a hillside a few hours before it caught fire, and one name kept popping up. Only one individual emerged. That was Robert Eason. Also known as Bob Eason, but he's not the volunteer firefighter you just heard from. Alan's talking about Bob's son. That's him. That's him. Alan's showing me a picture of Bob Jr. on his computer. He looks young and slightly awkward, his dark hair already receding. Bob Jr. joined the volunteer fire department when he was 18 and loved it. Really loved it. If there was a car accident, chances are it was Bob Jr.'s voice that the volunteers heard over the radio, directing paramedics to the crash scene. By the time Alan's team started closing in on him, Bob Jr. had been promoted to fire captain. The way Alan tells it, the fires in the Cape Valley started burning right after the Eason family moved to town. And more often than not, they happened when Bob Jr.'s life took a turn for the worse. There was that flurry of fires after Bob Jr. lost his job at the ambulance company, and that uptick in fires when his son was colicky. Bob Jr. used to drive through the valley's back roads in the middle of the night, driving up and down the highway until his baby fell asleep. Alan suspects that he lit fires as he went. So Alan and his team had a suspect, and in 2006, they started to follow him. I'm driving through the Cape Valley with Alan. Beginning in June 2006, his team of investigators had people staked out in a dozen different locations here for months. This is the area where we had people sitting all night, hoping creatures don't come cruising through (laughs) the hogs or, or bears. Their investigation also relied on roadside traffic cameras, and one of them caught Bob Jr. driving suspiciously close to the scenes of the crime. On July 30th, one roadside camera showed Bob Jr. driving through a nearby canyon in the afternoon. He U-turns and drives back the way he came. Two fires flare up by that road half an hour later, a hundred yards apart from each other. In August, the team got clearance from a judge and managed to sneak a tracker onto Bob Jr.'s car. The tracker showed Bob Jr. driving suspiciously close to a fire scene later that night. So you see this little flat down in here, yeah. below these hills? That's where fires took place, right along in this strip right here. Right here? Yeah. Okay. September 21st, around midnight. Bob Jr. drives past this hill, then U-turns and drives by it again. The hillside starts burning a few hours later. The fire catches the wind, and those sheep we heard about earlier, they start to burn. 
Can we walk around or no? Sure, where would you like to walk? All right, let's do it. There's a lettuce farm across the highway, a few thin cows lazily grazing between the black trees. The fire that burned PJ's sheep was one of the most damaging fires that Bob Jr. is accused of starting. It was also one of his last. Because a few weeks after the sheep fire, Alan's team arrested Bob Jr. and searched his house and car. They didn't find anything at first. Then, in the trash, beneath a pile of dirty diapers, they found two coils, ready to go. Bob Jr. and I have written to each other. He's incarcerated at the California City Correctional Facility and doesn't want to talk to me on the record right now. But his dad, Bob Sr., was willing to share what he remembers about the day his son was arrested. I I was shocked when I got a phone call from this lady here. She says, Bob, there's, there must be 15 cars around your house. And when I got in the car, you know, three or four cops came over and they says, were you aware of it? Of course, I wasn't aware of it. And I says, you know, I think if anything like that was going on, I would know about it. His son was accused of lighting 16 fires in three months. And he was suspected of starting a lot more than that. During his investigation, Alan Carlson produced a detailed map of the Valley's suspicious fires over the years. He now believes that Bob Jr. set 152 fires over the course of 18 years. Bob Sr. visited his son in prison as soon as he could. As you could tell, he'd been crying for hours, you know. It's... I asked him, Bob, what the hell happened? He said, I am so sorry, Dad. I don't know how this happened. It's hard for him to admit this now, but Bob Sr.'s first thought was that his son might be guilty. I asked him what made him think Bob Jr. might have done this. 30 years of, you know, worrying about him every day. Bob Sr. and his son are close. They always have been. But their relationship is complicated. When his son was born, Bob Sr. thought it was a given that he would become a firefighter like him. They bought him fire trucks and he would play fire trucks with his little hat and, and that sort of thing. But it quickly became clear Bob Jr. was different. He may have had learning disabilities. His father recalls that he couldn't pay attention in school. And his hands tend to shake when he feels stressed or emotional. So Bob Sr. steered his son away from the fire academy. Those programs take focus and test-taking skills. But his son ignored him and tried to do any kind of firefighting he could. He bounced from job to job. He could never hold on to one for very long. He worked as an ambulance driver, then as an EMT. Jobs that involve saving lives. Do you think that Bob ever wanted to be a hero? Constantly. <laughs> If you listen to his stories, like I say, the stories are always different, but the hero's always the same. In his mind, he was a hero every time. Bob Sr. doesn't think his son's the hero of this story, but he doesn't think he's the villain either. He now believes his son is innocent. He keeps boxes of court transcripts and fire investigation reports in a green shipping container near the family barn. He thinks there are still a few lingering questions in this case, and that investigators were too single-minded to notice them. Investigators, they want to find the monster. That's what investigators do. 
Take the coils, for instance. The volunteers and local investigators had been finding them for decades. But when it comes to the fires that Bob Jr. was actually convicted of starting, the High Desert team never found any coils at those scenes. To Alan the arson investigator, of course, it makes perfect sense that you wouldn't find them. The cruel genius of the coil is that it often erases itself. But this lack of evidence at some of the fire scenes drives Bob Sr. crazy. Well, because we couldn't find any evidence that he did it, therefore he had to have done it. It makes no sense. But that didn't bother the jury at Bob Jr.'s trial. In 2008, he was found guilty of 12 counts of arson. And at sentencing, Alan and two of his team members wrote letters to the judge, urging him to give Bob Jr. the highest possible sentence. One investigator even called him a, quote, environmental terrorist. So the judge sentenced Bob Jr. to 40 years in prison. And to put that in perspective, the 12 fires that Bob Jr. was actually convicted of starting didn't really hurt anyone beyond PJ the farmer's sheep. Some of the fires were the size of your average bedroom. Bob Jr. calls his father from prison every Saturday. Each of those phone calls begins the same way. You know, I have this stupid thing I do, and I don't know why. How's it going? You know... Well, and his answers, same old, same old. Bob Sr. left the Cape Valley after the trial. It was too hard to live there after everything that happened. In a recent phone call, he told me he gave up his walnut orchard years ago. He traded it in for a house ringed by pine trees in a quiet town north of Chico. As soon as you get up the hill and you get the, the tall trees, you're in the mountains, it's, it's a whole different world. <laughs> it's a whole lot easier living in paradise than it is living in the Cape Valley. <laughs> yeah, that paradise. All we're seeing is charred remains of what used to be a, a town that people love. Homes reduced to rubble. The smoke's still very, very thick. It's hard to breathe. The campfire has become the deadliest wildfire in California history. Bob Sr. wasn't home when the campfire started this past November. But in a pretty crazy coincidence, the man who put his son in prison was there to smell the smoke. Fire investigator Alan Carlson lives in Chico now, and he awoke to a volcanic black cloud spreading through the sky. I went down to the end of the street, take a look. There was uh, even debris falling out where I was standing. It was like it was a light snow, you know, it was real gray ash. Eighty-five people were killed in the campfire. Tens of thousands were displaced, and Bob Sr. was one of them. He called me a few months after it happened from Arizona, says he plans to move back to paradise as soon as he can. As the campfire burned its way into Chico, Alan went to get a better look at it. Figuring at some point in the process, I'd probably be investigating the fire. Alan's retired from Cal Fire now, but he still investigates people who start fires. He works as a private consultant, and this time, he's looking at a corporation. PG&E experienced an unexplained power outage right before the campfire started, and survivors say their homes burned down because of the company's neglected and faulty equipment. Allen's been hired by one of the many potential plaintiffs who are suing PG&E over what happened. There's certain industries or corporations out there that seem to inherently be frequent flyers when it comes to igniting fires. It's tough to compare a fire started by a person to a fire started by a corporation. The laws that govern them are obviously different. 
But like the arsonists that Allen spent years tracking, corporations that start fires also tend to start a lot of them. And while plenty of those fires aren't due to criminal negligence, plenty of them could be. In a report last year, Cal Fire found that PG&E had repeatedly broken state safety laws, which led to at least eight wildfires in 2017. And whether a fire is set by a person or a corporation, the work that goes into investigating it stays more or less the same. Allen says he and his team learned a lot from the two long years it took them to catch one troubled fire captain in the Cape Valley. Their investigation was exhaustive. Remember the forensics, the tracker, the cameras. It's one of several cases that helped set a new standard at Cal Fire, a standard that Allen says investigators will bring with them as they look into the campfire. Allen spent weeks in the campfire wreckage, trudging uphill through the mud with his gear bag. And it's miserable. I mean, the winds were blowing almost constantly. There dust flying, ash flying. He's set up his grid. He's looking for signs. He says if he's learned one thing from the Cape Valley case, it's that this kind of work pays off. The Cape Valley burned last year, and it burned the year before that. But Cal Fire says the actual number of wildfires there has dropped since Bob Eason Jr. went to prison. And that's the California Report magazine. Thanks to reporter Teresa Katsourilis for bringing us that story. Thanks also to Anna Sussman, Kara Platoni, Ed Dobb, Danny's Wordling, Mary Lee Williams, Levi Bridges, Graylin Brashear, and Spencer Silva for their support with this story. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. Our director is Susie Racho. Victoria Maleon is our senior editor. Our intern is Asala Sanapur. Our editorial team also includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And the James Irvine Foundation, honoring the recipients of the 2019 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards. Learn more at irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. 
Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.